Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and share the warmth. Yes, yes. This is more like it. It's not fully autumnal yet. No frost in the lawns, a few dry leaves, but not enough to hush about your feet as you slog the side streets. But it is better. It's better than the mud time in the mid-80s, yes? That was just last week. Come in. Don't be shy. You've reached the nook. Hit the right bell. This is Tales to Terrify. I'm Lawrence Santoro. And have we got an evening for you? That's not a question. It's a statement of sure and certain fact posed rhetorically. Just because we have an evening for you. A large and generous time will be had. We'll have poetry, story, a backyard bonfire with ghosts. And yes, two weeks in a row, we'll have song. All right. Have you your treats? A mug of mulled cider? Are you settled? Good. Before the fun, before song and story, sometimes it all gets a bit too real, this playing about with gloom, horror, terror. So before we submerge ourselves in the fiction of the week, let me speak briefly of the real. We lost... A good man this week, Philip Nutman. Phil was, well, <laughs> he was a Brit, a writer, a filmmaker. He was a guy who, at 24, was a producer for the BBC and packed it in to become a full-time writer and an expatriate. Fans of Fangoria will certainly remember Phil. 
I met him only once at a Nikon meeting several years ago. He was in top form, open, effusive, dare I say at times goofy, atop an always strangely serious face. Well, Phil left us this week, and I wish him well. There is another item I want to bring to your attention this week, and will probably remind you of in weeks to come. Do you recall several weeks ago, show number 86, I read a story called Sinner, Baker, Fabulous Priest, Red Mask, Black Mask, Gentleman, Beast. That story won the nebula in the year it came out. Uh, The story was by a wonderful writer, Miss Yuji Foster. Word reached me earlier this week that Yuji Foster has a particularly aggressive form of cancer, and while she has insurance, she has lousy insurance. Let's face it, where there's cancer, all insurance is lousy. While the various communities which Yuji's talents served wish her all the best, I hope that we can all come together here and across the District of Wonders and kick in a bit of money to help the Fosters through this horrible, awful, no-good time. Two possibilities present themselves. You can contribute directly by sending a few bucks via PayPal to Yuji, that's E-U-G-I-E, at UGFoster.com. I'll put that on the homepage at TalesToTerrify.com, and it'll be on our Facebook page as well. Another option, quite simply, buy her books. She's got a lot of material out there, and I'm certain you'll find much in her work to your, to our collective tastes. I am going to point you to the Boing Boing page where I first heard about this wretched thing, and that will also be on the homepage as well as on the Facebook page. So, there it is. Okay. Okay. First up this evening, a poem for the season. Halloween, in case you're listening to an archived recording of this evening somewhere ages and ages hence, the new poem is by Robert Cabine. I don't know if actually it's a new poem, but it's one that we just got from him. He just a few weeks ago serenaded us with Dr. Vollmer. You remember that? That was read to us by the inimitable Robert Neufeld, Mr. Cabine's effort tonight will again be bodied forth for us by Mr. Newfeld. Let's go there now, shall we? The piece is called... Clowns. I envy those who live a life where nothing strange takes place. The lucky ones whose days and nights slip by without a trace. At one time I was one of them. I never really knew that horror waits at every turn and nightmares can come true. By random chance or dark design, my ordered life was thrown into a state of dread and fear that I had never known. It happened three short years ago, October 31st. Of all the nights that I've lived through, that night alone was cursed. I'd finished up a business trip and I was heading home. I'd finalized a contract with the Houston Astrodome. My company makes souvenirs, T-shirts, pins, and hats. The Astros bought our brand new line, Collector Baseball Bats. 
I told my wife that I'd be home in Denver late that night. I sped across the panhandle. The autumn moon was bright. The interstate was long and flat. The night was warm and dry. The restful rhythm of the road was like a lullaby. I nodded off, then jerked awake. I'd driven much too long. So I pulled off the interstate, where I did not belong. I made a turn, then turned again down dusty, dark dirt roads, saw armadillos, bats, and snakes, heard crickets, owls, and toads. Beside the road, an old hotel, ten miles from any town, lay rotting in the grim landscape. That's where I saw the clown. I thought I was seeing things. He ran in front of me. I swerved in time to miss the fool and almost hit a tree. My headlights stopped him in his tracks, just like a startled deer. He stood there with his big shoes on and evil grease paint sneer. His eyes were round and red and wild. He pointed to the sky. The clown began to hop around, pretending he could fly. He flapped his big arms up and down, then tapped my window hard. He honked his red nose several times and handed me his card. His name was Bouncing Benny Brown from Twin Falls, Idaho. He pointed to the old hotel and said, Come on, let's go. Reluctantly, I let him in and drove across a field. We neared the crumbling edifice. He clapped and laughed and squealed. We pulled up to the hotel door. He thanked me for the ride, then handed me a bright green wig and said, Come on inside. The reason why I followed him is still unclear to me. I felt a strange euphoria, a dark and haunting glee. A clown on stilts stood by the door. His face was broad and fat. He greeted us, then waved us in and tipped his doorman's hat. My senses were assaulted by a deafening giddy din, the sickening smell of punch and sweat and garish painted skin. As I skulked across the lobby, a skull-faced little clown was leering at my normal clothes. He looked me up and down. I quickly put my green wig on and fluffed the nylon hair. I forced a phony, nervous smile and wished I wasn't there. The hotel had an atmosphere of danger, dread, and doom, and even though I needed rest, I didn't want a room. We pushed our way through crowds of clowns of every shape and size, and though they were all quite unique, they all had crazy eyes. Above the yawning ballroom door I saw a sign that read, Psycho Killer Cannibal Clowns Convention, straight ahead. I laughed and turned to Benny Brown. The sign seemed like a joke. He looked confused and grinned at me, then licked his lips and spoke. Just think of us as hunters, friend. His voice gave me a chill. We never waste a single life. We always eat our kill. We stock our prey at carnivals, the circus, and the fair. At children's parties, look around. You'll often find us there. If they believe you're one of us, you might leave here alive. You'd better play along, my friend, or you will not survive. He dragged me to the ballroom floor, where psycho-killer clowns assembled by the hundreds from their sleepy little towns. 
They beamed with ghoulish grease-paint grins as terror tales were told. Their gory stories were insane, malicious, cruel, and cold. A blue-haired, brutish, drunk buffoon was boasting to the crowd that once he ate some high school kids. The clowns all laughed out loud. He passed around some Polaroids. The prints were smeared with blood. One half-devoured victim's corpse was face down in the mud. I feigned that I was interested, as I thumbed through the stack of picture trophies showing him slash and stab and hack. One grisly photo clearly showed a young girl with a crown. The pretty prom queen's severed head was chopped off by the clown. Then Benny slapped him on the back and gave a knowing nod. He cleared his throat, and then he spoke. His voice was low and odd. "'Dear clowns and colleagues, can I have your full attention, please? These pictures are magnificent, but take a look at these.' He winked and started taking off his circus-colored vest, then opened up his baggy blouse and bared his hairy chest. A strange thing hung around his neck. It dangled in a loop. The other clowns all ooed and awed as Benny charmed the group. A closer look at what he wore confirmed my deepest fears. What looked like dried-up apricots were really shriveled ears. He'd made a necklace out of them with bones and beads and teeth. He twirled around so all could see the decomposing wreath. He bowed and fingered them with pride, then turned to me and said, I cut my victim's right ear off before I make them dead. It comforts me to keep them close. Each one's a patient friend. I talk to them when I'm alone. They listen without end. The savage clowns were all impressed. I thought that I might scream. Their rowdy cheers and jealous sneers made bouncing Benny beam. A punchy punchinello yelled, Attention, one and all! Our gourmet dinner's being served inside the banquet hall. Then Bouncing Benny grabbed my arm and pulled me off my feet. Come on, get moving, Benny said. I'm hungry. Let's go eat. I'm sure the hall was elegant a century ago, but now it reeked of foul debris that rotted down below. Their decorations were grotesque, Intestines draped the hall. A rude collage of body parts was hung on every wall. A string of severed human hands swung from a chandelier. They cast a ghastly shadow show of light and dark and fear. The tablecloths were tattooed skin, arranged in odd designs. The knives and the forks were carved from bones. The candlesticks were spines. An army of tuxedoed clowns brought hors d'oeuvres on a tray. The severed tongues in a blood-clot sauce made quite a foul display. A heavy hunchbacked harlequin, with teeth filed razor-sharp, played eerie dinner music on a human ribcage harp. The clowns were waiting in a line for bloody smorgasbord. The hotel staff had been butchered to feed their hungry horde. The steaming bins of half-cooked meat were disappearing quick. The way they gnawed the thick red flesh was making me feel sick. 
They gorged themselves and passed foul gas, spit gristle, bone, and hair. They belched and drooled, then ate some more. The gore was everywhere. A bowl of steaming hearts arrived. The ghastly clowns dug in, but when they munched on baby toes, my head began to spin. I fainted like a debutante and slid down to the floor. When I woke up, I looked around and saw an open door. I hid beneath the tabletop while bouncing Benny ate and gossiped with his fiendish friends. I knew I couldn't wait. I inched toward the door outside through table legs and feet. They didn't see me slip away. Their eyes were on their meat. But as I crawled, I kicked a skull. A candle burned inside. The fire danced across the floor. The planks were old and dried. The fire crept up tablecloths and leaped from chair to chair. The bloated clowns burst into flames and wailed in wild despair. I bounded through the open door as flames engulfed the hall. The sizzling clowns were trapped inside. The fire cooked them all. I stumbled through the open field. The hotel belched out smoke. The stench from those cremated clowns caused me to gag and choke. Some waddled from the old hotel, their costumes in a blaze. They broiled and screamed out in the dark. I stood there in a daze. Then from the fierce inferno ran a clown consumed in flame. He made his way to where I stood and called me by my name. He lunged at me as I backed up, then tumbled to the ground and curled up in a smoking heap. He shrieked and writhed around. I knew that it was Benny Brown. I can't imagine how. There wasn't much of Benny left. I still can see him now. The fire seared and charred his flesh. His burned and blackened bones protruded through his blistered meat. His eyes were sightless stones. With all the strength that he had left, he raised a glowing hand. He coughed, then he began to speak. I tried to understand. He sighed, The hunger. Then he paused. Black smoke was in his breath. The hunger made me do bad things. The clown was close to death. Don't give in to the hunger, friend. His lips cracked off like coal. The hunger gets inside of you and eats away your soul. He said, Thanks for the fire, friend, and simmered like a roast. His embers swirled around my feet as he gave up the ghost. I waited there a long, long time until the clowns were dead. Each twisted brain lay smoldering inside a haunted head. The darkness of the desert night snuffed out the dying flames. The fire had destroyed the clowns, and only left their names. Joe Jiggs the Clown and Benny Brown and Topsy from St. Paul, Rags Malone and Jolly Joan were all I can recall. I made my way through smoking piles of soot and bones and shoes. I couldn't help but think about those stories on the news— the ones where people disappear and never can be found, how many were the victims of those ashes on the ground? 
I suddenly felt numb and ill. The air was dry and cold. The morning sun lit up the sky with blue and pink and gold. My face and hands were covered with a smoky, oily grime, the evil, reeking residue of homicidal slime. It soaked into my skin and bones and everything between. I knew that if I washed for days, I never would get clean. I found my car and drove away, but I was not secure. I knew I'd left with memories that I could not endure. Since then, there hasn't been a day I've felt completely right. I always think about those clowns and what I saw that night. Sometimes I wake up in the night from dreams about that place, the barren Texas wasteland and Bunny's burning face. His charred lips whisper obscene things that make me feel afraid, and even after I wake up, my fears refuse to fade. At midnight, every Halloween, and when the moon is big, I go down to the basement and put on my bright green wig. I lock the doors and windows tight while trick-or-treaters play, and crouch behind the furnace till the hunger goes away. Like the great apes, chimps et al., I think clowns disturb us because we see ourselves so closely mirrored in them. When I was a tot, I was taken to the circus, and while I was perfectly willing to find clown life at audience distance, an amusing avatar of the real world, it got a bit too creepy when a passing Bigfoot snatched me from Mommy's side and carried me aloft into the ring and spun me around within the heart of the mayhem beast, Clown Alley. Yes, I screamed. I was returned, and maybe the world for me was never quite the same. I've used that episode in several stories, actually. It didn't foster a fear of clown in me, but every time I see one, there is that thought, there but for the grace of, well, you know. <laughs> Thank you for clowns, Bob and Bob. Bob Cabine's principal work is as a screenwriter. He's written for Disney and also wrote the animated feature Heavy Metal 2000 for Columbia TriStar Sony Pictures. Some other film credits include Walking with Buddha and A Monkey's Tale. Bob has a collection of horror tales and poems entitled Tainted Treats, which includes illustrations by Mike Mignola, William Stout, Simon Bisley, Dave Stevens, and Bob Cabine himself. I'll put Bob's illustration for Clowns on our Facebook page. Bob Neufeld, who read Clowns, is an old hand at this kind of dark dreaming by now. Most recently, he entertained us with Mr. Cabine's Dr. Volmer. And a few weeks before that, he read all five-plus hours of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness to us here in the Nook. You can hear more from Bob at LibriVox and over in the Crime City Central neighborhood in the District of Wonders. 
Jumping forward with the evening, we have another tour of the haunted world with Sylvia Schultz coming up. This month, well, we examine the goings-on around the Quad Cities as we share an evening in Spewey's backyard. What's that? You'll have to listen. Ah, Sylvia, ready to go. Lights out. This is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out. So glad you could join me. I've got a great show for you guys this time, so let's go Lights Out. A while ago, I went to the Quad Cities for a book signing at the Barnes & Noble in Davenport. Afterwards, my husband and I met some friends for a lovely dinner, followed by more friends joining us for a bonfire in the backyard. As we were sitting around the bonfire... Spewy, Alex, and Val shared some stories with me. All right, I'm in the backyard of Spewy's house, and Spewy and Alex are here, and they're going to tell me stories of, what did you say it was, the Phantom Hearse? Uh, well, no, first we're going to talk about, ten, first I'm going to tell you about 1044 Pershing, yeah. and then we're going to tell you about 712 43rd Street. The Pershing place was in Davenport, the, uh, the 712 43rd Street was in Rock Island. That was it. Chris and I shared the apartment in Rock Island, and I lived at one of the apartments on... Oh, there's more smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's not a ghost, it's smoke. (laughs) It burns the eyes. Okay. Lord, that is nasty stuff. So, 44 Pershing was an old mansion, and it was owned by an architect that that, uh, owned his own firm. And it was a really neat old building. It was this giant gray stucco building. And they had chopped it up into apartments. And the neat thing about the place was he had designed the house as a showcase. So every doorknob on either side was a different doorknob uh, in the whole house. Like, there was not one doorknob that matched. Uh, There were different cabinets. There were different windows. Each window was a different kind of window. Uh, So it was a sample house. Yeah, it was a sample house. He would have have parties and invite and bring investors and people that wanted to buy a house over to his house and say, well... This is our blah 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 window, our, our lead glass beveled window with a te- with a teardrop and diamond print in it. And if you'd like to know what it looks like at sunrise, well, this is what it looks like at sunrise. Come on over. <laughs> and so it was a really neat house to live in, but it was also haunted, mm. really, really, really haunted. And each apartment, we're not sure if each apartment had its own ghost or if it was each floor that had its own ghost. It seemed like my, because I lived in apartment four, and my friend Eric lived in apartment five. And he lived across the hall from me. And uh, we both had the same problem with one ghost that Eric referred to as the gentleman. And the gentleman didn't do anything bad. He would just move things. Like your car keys. It, would, it was always men's stuff. He would never touch women's stuff. Because my girlfriend would come over and her stuff never got touched. Huh. But it would, like my car keys, my wallet, uh, my pager at the time. Um, random stuff would just get moved. Yeah wherever the gentleman thought it should go. Because I was—I I have memory problems, so I always put everything in a very specific spot every day, so that way when I leave the house, I can do things like drive my car, <laughs> lock my door, things like that. But the gentleman would always move things, and Eric says he saw him. He says he was a very tall guy in a top hat, but, you know, Eric smoked a lot of pot. So that could, that could have been anything. And then the second floor, the second floor had something not nice in it. Mm. 
it was uh, like I knew, I knew several people that had lived in the apartment that I moved into eventually that moved into apartment 7 so there were 9 apartments in the building total oh. <clears throat> and in apartment 7 was where this big kind of nasty thing lived it was, we, 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 everybody referred to it as the Jabberwocky for lack, oh for lack of a better term uh-huh. Like sometimes people Would see like Big glowing eyes They would knock things Off the wall Oh jeez uh, Like if you had uh, We had a I had a curio shelf On one On one wall And uh It would knock Things off the wall oh. Like the whole They would knock The whole shelf Off the wall oh, Or it would just Knock individual pieces Off the wall You'd be sitting In your living room And pieces would Zink Toosh And fall off And break It was the weirdest thing At first I'm like Well that's odd I wonder who I would Share a wall with And I went to the Other side of the wall And I was thinking About it I'm like well, that's my foyer. Oh. And I'm the only one in the house. Huh. Okay. But yeah, this thing was creepy. And it would, like, the room was always darker than it needed to be. And, like, even when you turn lights on, it wouldn't light up, right? And we, yeah, the only time it was ever fine was during the daylight hours. Oh. As, soon as, as soon as the sun went down, that place was just, that, that room, that apartment in general was just horrifying. I did not like being in there. I came home one night and found my room. I had gotten a roommate, and I found him sitting on the couch, shaking, just quivering and freaked out. I was like, what's wrong? I thought he had had a bad trip or something, and he was completely sober. Just freaked out. I was like, what the fuck is in your apartment? What is in your apartment? Oh, my God, what is in your apartment? I can't live here. And he moved out. Oh. Because it was so bad And he didn't even believe in ghosts I told him we had ghosts And he didn't believe it Until he saw that He's like And I'm out No and Off he went Never saw him again Jeez Yeah And Yeah that was That was most of the Most of the ghosts In 1044 Pershing Those are the ones That I had experience with anyway I heard that there were like Three or four more ghosts That lived there uh-huh. But uh, I never saw I never saw them And we're fairly certain There was some sort of like Other thing In the basement uh, Jeremiah lived in the house in the, in the, in the house with us too Oh, okay, yes. cool Jeremiah We're telling one, ghost stories Jeremiah was the one that got choked by a ghost Yeah Oh, yeah, like, was, like handprints and everything Oh, yeah. man Suck I've got a radio show called Lights Out And it's all ghost stories and everything So would you mind? No, go for it Awesome Have at it <laughs> I'm recording oh, right now so. Oh, I'm, I'm not really good at all right, all right. It, it, it's so okay. the, the reason being because I was the recipient and, and you were asleep. And, you were asleep. <laughs> and I was asleep. Oh, jeez. No, we were, uh, well, yeah, it always <laughs> happened when I was asleep. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the that house we lived in was really, really haunted. And it started off with me and Michael and Sandy. And it was weird because when I first moved in, I felt very comfortable in this place. Like, uh, immediately comfortable in my room. I was like, oh, I, like, I really like this room. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. And I, I moved in, and I brought all my clothing in in awful. trash bags. Oh. And then I realized, oh, my crap, I have no hangers. <laughs> oh, I love this story. I was part of this story. <laughs> you were part of that story because you were hanging out at the house that day. I was helping you move in. Well, that's right, you were. I remember I came downstairs, and I'm like, hey, Al, did you have any hangers? Because there's none in here. No. You're like, I think I got some hangers down here. And as I walked back up, you opened the, cu- opened the closet door, which I had opened before because I had thrown a bunch of my clothes in there on yeah. the floor. Yeah. There was like 600 hangers, old, heavy-duty wire metal hangers. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, Sandy must have given me some hangers. That's cool. Hey, Sandy, but thanks it was, for the... 
it was like my whole closet was full of yeah. hangers, like wall to wall hangers. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't you know all over the place hangers. It was just a nice solid from one end of the wall to the other end yeah. of the wall. I'm like, I don't know what the hell he's bitching about about not having any wire hangers. <laughs> Somebody's been drinking again. I have not. And I, I was, and it just like Alex, you got plenty of hangers. I'm like, no, I don't. Oh, oh, hey, Sandy, thanks for the. I didn't give you any hangers. Mike, thanks for the hangers. I didn't give you any hangers. Okay. <laughs> the hangers house <laughs> appreciate the hangers they're very nice and they're, they, they, were, they were like the heavy duty sturdy yeah like they weren't like the, the crappy ones you get from the dry cleaners they nowadays yeah, they, they were like they were heavy they weren't, weren't expensive oh, like the ones like people early in the SCA used for uh, chain mail yeah <laughs> like, they, they were seriously heavy heavy duty yeah. hangers yeah like obviously store bought but you know there's a lot of them too mm-hmm. and then you know other things would happen like I'd come into the apartment and that was when I was working uh, a job where I, I got pretty smelly at work so I'd come home and you know take off my work clothes and throw them on the floor and then throw on what my, whatever I was going to do to hang out and go and do whatever and I would come back up to my room later and my shoes would be sitting very tidily by the door with the socks folded up on top of them and my clothes would be in the hamper <laughs> You had the best yeah. ghost ever. My, my ghost was awesome. My room ghost was the best right. ghost. I love my ghost. You get in on these stories after I get out of these stories because you're the third person to move into the yeah. house, which means and, you're and not that, there yet. I, I had, yeah. And I had great experiences in that room. That room loved me, and that ghost loved me. She took care of me, and we think it was the nursemaid. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was crazy. And, like, at night you'd hear... The, the, well, hold on, because this is my part of the story. So oh, yeah. I move in. Uh, Michael moves out. I move in, and my room was obviously the one that had the kid in it. It was the middle bedroom, and you'd sit there at night, and you'd hear him, you know, playing like hand ball up against the wall, bump, 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 bump. And it'd be like, shut up, I gotta be up, and it'd stop, and it's like, thank you. <laughs> so, and then my favorite was, you'd hear him running across the, the ceiling. With the dog, yeah. With the dog, you'd hear attic. Yeah. Dog chasing the kid. And this would go on all night. Yeah. Oh, and you just be like, okay, guys, seriously, I gotta work at six o'clock in the morning. Sorry. Okay. And you go to sleep. <laughs> and and it wouldn't happen. And sometimes did did you hear a voice saying no. sorry? No. Oh, you know, okay. We, just... But we heard the thump 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 thump. And I was like, oh. the first time I heard it, I was like, oh fuck, we got raccoons. <laughs> Raccoons don't generally have that heavy of a footstep. But yeah, I don't want to see the raccoon that has that heavy footstep. It's <laughs> a big raccoon. So we should back down. It kind of is calmed down. Like, ouch. And uh, yeah, the, so there was that one. And then the, the kid would also like stand at the top of the stairs, and you could see the kid. Like pretty much, he yeah. Was pretty much visible. Like you actually, the one you, you, yeah. you couldn't see him if you looked directly at him. But like, yeah. if you were just coming up the stairs, even, and he was there. even after I moved in, you yeah, could, you could the see. kid was fine. And I'd be laying in bed because he'd stand at the top of the stairs, wrapped up in a blanket, with it over his head, standing, staring down at you. You'd just see him look like he was wearing a little cloak or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, he would also him and the dog would like climb into bed with me. You know, it's how you when you're laying in bed and somebody sits down in the bed, you kind of roll down to it. Yeah. So you'd roll down. Yeah. You go back. All of a sudden, you, I felt the, like a heavy petting, you know, the, <laughs> I'm like, okay, Sam, all right, if you're a good puppy. Sam is my parents' dog's name at the time, which didn't live with me. <laughs> I should probably make that said. Um, at that point, I also, at that point, realized that we don't my dog. parents' dog wasn't living with me, and I'm like, 
Oh, that's kind of weird. Oh, he seems to be sleeping, so I don't know, whatever. (laughs) I know we don't generally have the same attitude towards ghosts as probably many of your other people, but it's just kind of like... I think it's wonderful. We don't really mind them that much. They're right. See, the thing is, we don't mind them... We're about to get into your story. (laughs) We don't mind them if they can play well with others. Yeah. However, we also had something in this house that was very... Very nasty. Very rude. And when I moved in to the house... Mm-hmm. I'm standing basically in the hallway, right outside my bedroom door. I'm looking. Uh, uh, He's talking to me. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking to you. He's leaning up against the wall to the stairs of the attic. Okay. And up the, I can literally see 1900s. Night, yeah, 1905. Basically, a big guy. And you can tell it's a brown suit, and it's big, and it's dirty. You know, not cold dirty, but just kind of like dirty. Yeah. Well and worn. a boulder. And he walks up, and as soon as he, he gets to um, the top of the stairs and makes that turn, I look at Al, I'm just like... Mm-hmm. Stepped into his room and shut the door. I'm like, <laughs> I, so I didn't shut the door because it was one of those things where it was just like... As soon as he entered the room, I don't know, he couldn't get into that room for whatever reason. It was just, it was a safe zone, and you could just go back, and it was kind of like as soon as, I'm like, he can't make it across. Ah. And you could, I'm like, you could almost feel him pass, and then he liked to sit in the corner next to the bathroom. And we used to have parties. We used to have wonderful parties. (laughs) And the thing is, the light should shine all the way down the hall. But it's one spot always dark. Always. Always dark. And people would and come put, up. We put a lamp there. And the lamp would burn out. Yeah. yeah. Or or it would More just be once. dark. My favorite or, is people would go, go, hey, where's your bathroom? It's up the stairs and it's at the end of the hall. And you hear, thump, 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 I'll pee outside. Don't blame you. Even if you took a flashlight. Yeah. And you shine it in the park, it would dim. Yeah. It wasn't like proper life. He wasn't happy. And now we get to Jeremiah's side of the story because oh. he had lots of run-ins with them. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what you did to piss off that ghost. Dude, I didn't do anything. All I did was move and I think Greg did something. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't he doubt was the that Greg was did living in that room before I moved in. Okay. Yeah. First it was me, then it was Greg. Greg. Then it was you. Yeah. I was always the middle bedroom. Yeah. I was fine with that. <laughs> so what tell me your that? stories. Oh. Oh, I, I just pretty much moved in and was, you, you weren't even there more than a week. Uh, it was about a month. Was it? It was about a month. It, it, it was shortly after I got all the lights put up. In oh, yeah, your black lights. <laughs> that's a story. That's not even a ghost story in itself. That's just that's, a that's horror a, story in that's itself. That's the scariest part, really. So, you is know this, how... Is this I the story of the black lights you told me a couple right, years actually, ago? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I was, Can we tell that part of the story into this? Oh, sure. And I had a remote that I could turn so, the lights on in my room. So, I'm sure wow. you guys, like, know that certain substance, body fluids show up on, like, oh, black God. light yeah, type things. Was, yeah. <laughs> and, and we found it speckled on the ceiling. <laughs> And a handprint. And of course, I put my hand up to it because that had been my room originally. I'm like, well, maybe it. No, it ain't my hand. <laughs> Superman so. cum, this boy had. I don't know. Where it was on the wall. And, yeah, and, and the thing is, is, it's like, well, what about. And I'm like, going, no, I knew Greg, and I knew where his bed was, and I'm like, going, oh. <laughs> oh, so. So, yeah. I never 
already put my bed right up against there. I had my bed over here, and ow, this large police actually helped me scrub the wall. Here's a very nice friend. He's more than a friend, he's an accomplice. You have to sleep in this room, man, I'm sorry. There, there's, yeah. there's like four years of jizz on the walls. Sorry, and the ceiling, that was the part I couldn't get over. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. That's like, really? But Jeremiah had been living in that room for about a month. Okay. And one night we're all asleep. And we hear this, what the hell? And we're both out of We're like, what the hell? We, we think that he's having like a seizure. Cause we, we, I mean, we know Jeremiah. We've known him for a while. But we're like, well, he's never told us he's epileptic or anything like that. We're like, what the hell is going on? So we go trucking down the hall into Jeremiah's room. And he's like, we're like, what the hell? And he had a handprint on his neck. Like, yeah. like yeah. An, a visible handprint, handprint. on his freaking neck. It didn't bruise neck. up or anything. But you know how you sit there and... The redness yes. in between redness. the fingers, you could see the red marks. Yes. Wow, that's like crazy because he was a creepy, bad old man that used to live in the corner. Uh. We knew he was a bad, icky man. Uh. So, yeah. we that ended because it did happen a couple more times. We had some friends that you know basically claimed that they could talk to the spirit world, and we were like, Okay, Deb, go on up, see what you can do. And we're talking with her husband. And she's doing whatever she's doing and stuff we don't like care that. They stay here, but they gotta play nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's not playing nice, and somebody needs to talk to him. And I guess as she was talking to him, um, he started to strangle her. And she goes, "If you're close enough to strangle me, you're close enough to grab." And the next thing we know, she's kicking the door. She's going, "Open the door! Open the door!" And I'll tell you this much: it was like static electricity. As soon as she took a step yeah, out of that front porch, like right, every like hair lightning. all over the place. And she walked across the street to where the church was, and she went into the corner. And she goes, she just put, you know, did a light tap onto the corner of the church, it literally sounded like a whip crack across the street. Yeah. She Then she comes back across and goes, they're the goddamn church. They're paid to deal with this shit. <laughs> He's their problem now. Wow. Oh. all right, then. <laughs> and now, the, the most entertaining one, though. Are you talking about the attic one now? No, I'm talking about the, 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 the street. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 the porch one. The porch had to be my favorite one. All of a sudden, we're sitting there on the couch, and we hear pound, pound, pound. Hey, let us in. We forgot our key. That was New New Year's Eve, because Tobar was staying with us. Yes. And, you know, we hear pound. It's Kastansky's brother. Oh, okay. Uh, Comar and Giselle. Okay. Way back when. Yeah. Um, Now Comar and son. And so we look out the window. Yard's on fire. You want to go stamp that out? You got boots on. Yeah. Um, you don't no, got holes in your. You don't got holes in your shoes. And so, you know, we're we're looking. They'll take out. care of that for us. <laughs> we're, we're you know we're looking out the, the window and there's nothing there. And so we go back to watching the you know the movie. Oh, there wasn't anybody there. There saying, was nobody let us, there. Let us in. Yeah. Oh wow. So it happens again, and we go around to the door because we're like, well, are we missing something? <laughs> and and did, did Al knock on the door and then pass out in the bushes? Which, well, he's sitting me next to me on the couch, so I'm pretty sure it's not Al because he's sitting next to me. I was trying to kill myself with a grin that time. Um, so my favorite, as we're as we're me and Al are walking away from the door, it happens again. Al turns around and goes, "We're full. Go away." <laughs> and he, he looks at me and goes, "If they can't get in, 
we're not letting him in. Yeah. There you go. And I'm I think like, that's very that, sound. That's very reasonable. <laughs> good logic. Well, My sure. mother would be proud. And you know, and funny the thing is, we never heard it again. So it was kind of like, obviously, they went. That is rather logical. We should go find somewhere else. <laughs> now, our favorite story of the house involved me and Al. I get home one night. I don't remember. Was it was it one of the nights I was skipping work, or was that the night the building caught on fire? Yeah, I where I worked. The building caught on fire. <laughs> And exploded around me. He came home and I was like, "What the fuck are you doing home?" Hey, look, he goes, "You get fire, I'm like building exploded. I'll get you a drink." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're having scotch tonight, then, are we? Sounds good. It's like three o'clock in the morning. It's November. It's a lovely night, kind of like tonight, but a little bit yeah, so we went cooler. Out and I was a heavy smoker at the time. And I'm talking to him. My my back is uh, facing away from the hill. The street that's going up onto the incline. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And so I'm I'm talking to Al, and as I'm talking with Al, I notice that Al's eyes are getting a little bit bigger, and he's concentrating on looking at something, and I'm like, mm, whatever. And then he just kind of stops and is really looking at something. I'm like, well, I don't want to be hit by a car, so I'll turn around. And what he sees is this kind of was it palish blue haze, greenish type like of aquamarine, blue, yeah, haze. coming Coach. down the hill. And it was this horse-drawn carriage, which we found out later. on the horses and we everything. We found it was living like two blocks down the opposite way was an old funeral home. Oh, that's Around the turn awesome. of the, the century. The part was that as it came down the street, the street, not only did we see it, the street changed. To what it was a hundred years ago. Like underneath it was like cobblestone like, and, yeah, and the old brick. Houses that weren't there were, were there. Houses that were there were different. And it passed. And I looked at Alan and went, time for bed. <laughs> and, I, and he went, time for bed. And I was just glad that somebody else had seen it that night because I had seen it before. And I just, because I, well, I, I smoked outside because I didn't smoke in the apartment. And it was one of those things where I was like, huh. well, that's a hell of a thing. <laughs> Oh, that was, you guys weren't the only ones to see it. I saw it. Yeah. 
because uh, one of those parties we had late night, and I was still up. I, for some reason, I could stay up sometimes. <laughs> so there was about two other people. We were all sitting out on the porch, and we are sitting there talking. They're like, by the way, is, did, did we just see a horse carriage? Day Time for bed. I haven't seen a horse carriage. Yeah. <laughs> And it sure wasn't going right. green. <laughs> well, I'm glad right. you didn't see it either. <laughs> yep, uh, and it's about oh what? Between you know two and four in the morning. Huh? Yeah, right. happens. <laughs> oh, happens. I'm not crazy. I'm gonna go back. All right, get some Fruit Loops. <laughs> Here, here's the thing: is if you actually look up uh, ghosts stories or stuff in Rock Island. Mm-hmm. That's actually in a book. Yeah. The oh. is in a book. So. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Same found that. <laughs> hey, look, it's the street you lived on. Yeah, I, I was yeah, witness to that. Damn thing all the time. I was just it was primarily in November, though. Because usually, because yeah, I, I would come out, I would come out every, every, every night and smoke, and I was an insomniac, so, and I worked second shift, so I'd come out and be like, It went always going back to the funeral home. Yeah. Ah. So I don't know what happened. Yeah, you never see, you never actually saw it going the other way. It always came from from the the park side down yeah. to top the hill down. Yeah, top of the hill. Actually, that'd be an wow. interesting thing to find out because uh, I know you do all the research after you know you hear all the fantastic Maybe stories. One <laughs> back then. I don't know. Well, no, I'm I'm wondering if something happened at the gravesite. Or coming back from the gravesite because it always was going, you know, yeah, it and it was always right towards the river. It was always late yeah. fall, but it wasn't October. Hmm. Yeah. Actually, it might have happened a couple times it, in October, it, it, but it would never around Halloween. It was kind of like the, it happened in the warm weather too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because you just be like, oh. <laughs> now, did you talk about the one that was up in the attic? Which one? We haven't oh. talked about the attic. Oh yet. God, it was great because uh, and Alex the was the, the kid that no, 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 no. It happened with oh, you yeah. first, and it happened with me a couple times. You'd have your hands full of things. You'd go to the attic door. You'd turn the doorknob, and it only happened when you had your hands full, and the oh. fucking doorknob would come off. Yeah, yeah. doorknob would come off in your hands. <laughs> and then you'd hear this high pitched laughter behind you, like very funny. Leave <laughs> <laughs> alone, you little shit. <laughs> But it wasn't the kid. You knew it was something else. It didn't. Oh, yeah, it, it, it was, was definitely something else because it happened to me, too. <laughs> oh, the, oh we, forgot to, we forgot about what the house did to Greg. Greg. <laughs> the, the house, house hated, hated Greg. Greg. <laughs> now, but don't get you. Don't, we, we should preference this also by all of his roommates hated Greg. Greg. <laughs> the doors would move to hurt him. He would be coming down the stairs because we had a uh, there was a, there was a stairway and there were two doorways that you could come off of off the off the, up, off the stairs to the upstairs. There was into the kitchen uh-huh. and into the living room, uh-huh. and there was a door on the uh, on both one on, on, on both, both sides on both yeah. sides, and the door to the kitchen folded into the stairway. Okay. And Greg would come downstairs, and this door never moved. We we had it wedged <laughs> against the wall. Yep. It was it was and it was tucked it in. It never with, moved and, on me. No, and it never moved because it was tucked in with carpet. You had tried to like really. Yeah. Give it a tug to move it. Sure. And but the house hated Greg. The house and hated it made it tougher. The door would move just so it would slam him in the shin, the head, the shoulder, the knee, the toe. The toe. He, Always he, to- he actually broke his toe uh, in that house on that door. More than well, he broke his big toe on it, and he he, he got injuries. 
things would happen to him all the time. Uh, things would fall on the stairs. Things that weren't ours. <laughs> Random things. I mean, it was obviously like, you know, it was something that could have been ours. But it was like, well, that's not mine. I don't know where uh, that stopped coming from. over uh, one time that there was an actual knife on the stairs. Because Greg went to go upstairs, and then he stopped. And he turned around to go get something else. And I went to go up the stairs and who the hell's leaving a freaking knife on the stairs? Yeah, it was a stick knife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Not what Greg was yeah, I mean, he's fine and all that, but he was just a bad. Tool. He's kind of a tool. But yeah, it, the, the house would abuse him. Yeah. Literally, like, abuse him. was funny. The, the, the hot water <laughs> would turn off in the middle of his shower. Uh, <laughs> oh, hold on a minute. Or the cold water would Let turn me, off in the middle of his shower. This isn't a ghost story, but it could have been. Okay. And I about killed Greg that night. <laughs> So, it's late at night. It's one of those. It's like I'm. Ho- I get home. I'm tired. <clears throat> all that stuff. Now I should preface all of this with the fact of, you. Yeah, I'm doing. Um, I should preference this with the bathroom. <laughs> bathroom door had a window that was, you know, had the, the stuff on it, so it was oh, like, yeah. milked out and stuff like that. So you no couldn't glass. see through. Yeah. So. Opaque. Okay, yeah. So I'm sitting on the toilet doing my business, and all of a sudden I hear a door kind of open. I'm like, goddamn ghost. And as I'm doing that, uh, what I had not known was Greg in half sleep got up to go to the bathroom, and he decided that that was the perfect time to basically fall with his head up against the opaque glass, so only the outline. And I sounded like a woman screaming. I think that's the only time I ever screamed. <laughs> it was very, very high pitch. It was like, mm-hmm. I actually thought it was Greg, so I left it alone. If I had known it was you, I would come and check to make sure things was okay. It was very high pitch. I think it goes, it's me, stop screaming. I'm like, yeah, what, did the bats still sit there and fly around that uh, hallway up there? Uh, no, we didn't have any more bats after you moved out. Okay. Yeah, they didn't have a problem with bats until I moved in. For and, some reason. And we don't know where they we, they would just show up on the wall. Well, wait, no, because we all moved out at the same time. No, I moved no, you out moved before out. you guys. Right, that's yeah. right. Because after you moved out, Dimitri moved in. Yep. Yeah. They, we, had, we had bats that would just show up on the wall. Just, you know, chilling out. Oh, I'm uh, down, down by, by my room. Yeah, yeah, down by his room. Yeah. When oh, I moved so. in, and then when I left, they went away. That's crazy. Yeah, the house was... The, the, the house was cool. great. That's was an awesome house. <laughs> yeah. What a I was going to say, that's the whole thing about, honestly, other than the one ghost, yeah. that was great. <laughs> I think that's it. It's, it's pretty much, you, you know, haunted houses, you always, you know, get a, a certain viewpoint. But if you've got a, a different viewpoint on it, and you're kind of just going to, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you're not really bothering us more than what you're bothering us, we can all pretty much just live here in, in harmony, you know? Sure. Yeah, live, and, oh, oh. live and let live. I don't know if that's really although quite the, the right uh, <laughs> statement to stay here. But the, the, although the nursemaid would refuse to clean if you referred to her as a maid. Right. It was a nanny. Oh. Yeah, she was a nanny. If you oh. referred to her as the maid... Your room would not get clean. <laughs> and actually, she never no. bothered cleaning my room. She cleaned my room. Yeah, well, you, were, you were really tidy. 
she followed him down to the other end. I'd love to hear to Mike and find out what was in his room originally. Huh. I don't think Mike ever had any problems with ghosts in the house. Probably not. But it's Mike, and he's creepy. Uh-huh. And ghosts don't tend to bug him because they go, oh, we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't realize that was you. Um, haven't I said I'm very sorry, Mr. Cushing. <laughs> Yeah, it was a that, it was a it was a crazy house to live in, but it was fun. I mean, there was once we got rid of that one just jerk jackass. Yeah, you so everything was better after that. Yeah, actually, it really was. I hope you've enjoyed sitting in Spewy's backyard, listening to stories around a bonfire. For more true ghost stories, check out Fractured Spirits: Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital or the newest release from David M. Youngquist, Southern Fried Ghosts and Their Midwest Cousins. This new collection from Dark Continents Publishing contains loads of spooky tales, including the very first ghost story ever told about the Alamo, just three days after the battle. Visit Amazon.com for more information on these and other fine books. Dark Continents, we're on your bookshelf and under your bed. Join me next time for a very special Halloween edition of the show. You're going to want a flashlight to hold under your chins for this next show, folks, because it is guaranteed to give you the creeps. I can't wait to bring you the next show and to take you lights out. Thank you, Sylvia. That's a very enthusiastic team of reporters you've got this month. Must have been a a great bonfire. For those of you who wonder, the Quad Cities is a group of towns that straddle the Mississippi River. It's in beautiful bluff country. The, The author, Max Allen Collins, lives there. The four cities are Moline, Rock Island, East Moline, all of them in Illinois, in Battendorf, Iowa. So, thank you again, Sylvia. I'm looking forward to the Halloween outing with you. And now, jumping into fiction for the night, said fiction being The Pumpkin Man, a seasonal tale told by Mr. Autumn himself, John Everson. After the story, and before I turn you out into autumn night, we'll also have a friendly little song to send you on your way. Now, here is John Everson's The Pumpkin Man. When the lively summer breeze turns deathly chill and the lush emerald leaves of August crumble with autumn age, the pumpkin man comes to town. It happens every year. One day, the gravel lot on the corner of Fifth and Maple is bare, littered only with broken glass and tufts of dandelions and thistle. The next, and the lot is full, covered in gourds of all shapes and sizes. Piles of warty yellow squash tumble next to row after row of well-creased pumpkins, 
most of them fiery orange but some still betraying the green veins of a fruit that had been picked just before prime. When word filtered through the school that the pumpkin man had arrived, we got on our bikes and rode straight from school to sea. We went there every day for a month until one day, right after Halloween, we'd turn our bikes around that corner and find the lot was vacant again, littered only with the husks and leavings of gourds gone by. The year I turned thirteen, we had been anticipating his return for weeks when it finally happened. On the very first day of school, Steve Traskell had said, The pumpkin man will be here soon. One day, early in October, the day finally came. The word whispered its way across the school like fire in a field of browning wheat. I heard it first from Dave in English class and then from Bell in history. By lunch I'd heard it a dozen times. He's here. The pumpkin man is back. The school day took a month to pass. I watched the men at hand on the homeroom clock move from notch to notch, each minute taking an hour to tick by. When the three o'clock bell rang to announce the day's dismissal, I was already half out of my seat, anticipating its clamor. Billy and Carl were right behind me, and the three of us pushed our way down the crowded hall and out to the bike rack in record time. "'Going to Maple?' Steve asked, racing up behind our little gang. "'Yeah,' I said, not looking up from the combination of my bike lock. "'Can I go with you guys?' "'If you can keep up,' Carl said. He yanked his Ted's bean around and stomped the pedal as if he were jump-starting the engine on a motorcycle. "'Let's go, girls!' We were off. The thing about the pumpkin man wasn't that he appeared and disappeared each year with equal mystery and stealth, nor was it that he brought a thousand globes of orange and yellow for us to take home and carve. You could get a pumpkin at the save-all if you just wanted something to draw a face on. Aw, oh, man, Billy whispered as we skidded our back tires around as one and stopped to stare, a gang of four, at this year's display. The thing about the pumpkin man wasn't the pumpkins he brought to town, but the faces he carved on his pumpkins. In the midst of the sea of fire-bright globes that covered the white gravel of the lot at Fifth and Maple was a long wooden stand. It stood as tall as a man and as long as a house, and lining the half-dozen shells within its overhang were special pumpkins, carved pumpkins, pumpkins with the most evil grins and scowls you've ever seen scored into a gourd. At night he put candles in all of them, and the darkness at the edge of our little town was broken with a horde of devilish teeth and slanted glimmering eyes. It was as if the very door to hell had been opened and the armies of Lucifer were poised to feast upon our innocent souls. "'Damn!' Carl said as we stared at the offering for this year. Even in the daylight, the jagged orange-rind teeth gave me a shiver. Somewhere, someone was whistling a strangely discordant tune. "'Twisted as hell,' Steve agreed. We stashed our bikes on the side of the lot and stalked forward, eager to get closer to the frightful carvings that seemed to have blown in overnight with the brittle oak leaves." If the days of a stifling sun and cool blue pools were past, then this was a fine substitute, we thought. I moved past a row of grinning, leering faces, stopping finally at a particularly evil-looking gourd. Its eyes were almond-shaped, narrow but long, and its teeth leered like daggers waiting to strike. It was a pumpkin with the soul of a rabid rat. Help you, boys? Steve pulled his fingers back from touching one of the scowling gourds as if he'd been bit. Just looking, Carl said, answering for all of us. His voice shook a little, and I could understand why. The pumpkin man's creations weren't the only creepy thing in this newly filled lot. The pumpkin man himself was a frightening sight to behold. 
Wisps of ice-white hair curled out from his ears like mist, and his eyes, piercing blue, looked two tights together as if someone had rolled two blue marbles as close as they could. His lips were pale and long, and his neck was thin as a turkey's, but it was his hands that made you look twice. The pumpkin man strode slowly between us and the pumpkins, and as he did, he trailed one long finger across the green stubs at the top of each gourd. That finger seemed white as bone, its nail dark as snails. See something you like? Ten dollars for any of my babies. He grinned at us then, showing teeth brown as candied molasses. I shook my head and moved away from the display. In years past, I'd never come face to face with the pumpkin man when I'd perused his lot, and now, I found, he gave me the creeps more than his carvings. Steve, Carl, and Billy caught up with me a few minutes later as I wandered around a four-foot pyramid of orange globes. "'What's the matter, man?' Carl asked. "'We were talking to the pumpkin man back there after you split. He told us some cool shit, like how he models his carvings on animal teeth and people, too. Why'd you leave?' "'Just felt like it,' I dodged, and soon we were talking again about how cool the carvings were and about which of the hundreds of pumpkins we'd get our moms to come by in the next week.' Carl had already picked out one on the edge of the lot based on its totally cool warts. The thing was basically flat on one side and half yellow, but it didn't have a smooth patch of skin on it anywhere. It's a mutant, he boasted. Behind us, the pumpkin man stood, arms folded across his chest, smiling. A mutant, I thought. I didn't go back to the no longer vacant lot at Fifth and Maple for a few days after that. I'm not sure why. Everyone at school was abuzz with the cool faces the pumpkin man had brought for us to see this year. And there were always new ones. Each day he chose a gourd to create another feral face to replace whatever pumpkins had been purchased from his display. And each new fearsome face was different, unique. He didn't carve from a mold, that was for sure. His imagination was apparently full of haunting, harrowing teeth and eyes. It was probably the second week in October. The nights had come early, full of thick gray clouds and the trees already seemed skeletal, their leaves fled with fright at the onsite of an early winter. I was bicycling home from Carl's after dinner. It was only seven o'clock or so, but the sky was already devil blue, and I pulled on my jacket close as I pedaled around the bend at Fourth and Maple. Ahead, I could see the glow of candles and the leer of a hundred hungry faces. The twisted patch of the pumpkin man was waiting. I pedaled faster, past houses wreathed in cornstalks and fake spiderwebs, windows aglow in orange lights. As I reached the lot, I slowed. The row upon row of glowing fiery gourds lit the darkening fall of night, but did so in stillness. There were no shoppers perusing the pumpkin man's lot, nor a pumpkin man to be seen. I'm not sure what possessed me, but I braked my bike and laid it quietly on the rocks at the front of the lot. Then I walked in between the rows of uncarved, unborn pumpkin faces until I stood again at a display of carved pumpkins staring at the gourd I'd honed in on the week before. The rat-faced pumpkin. Its teeth still made my skin crawl as I stared into its flickering eyes. Something about it drew me, and despite the goosebumps on my skin, I stood there alone in the dark and returned its hellfire gaze. That's when it happened. I jumped five feet in the air. The screech had come from just behind the pumpkin trailer and it raised every hair on my head. It sounded like something had died. 
In front of me, a hundred flickering faces leered, but they stared quietly unmoving. I looked behind and to the side and saw only the shadows of pumpkin piles. A haze of clouds slid past the moon, and even the shadows grew darker. My heart pounded so loud I thought the neighbors must surely hear me from down the street, but I forced myself to creep down the aisle of candle grins to the edge of the makeshift shed. There was a dim light coming from behind the display stand, and I quickly saw why. The pumpkin man was carving. On a makeshift table, his hands moved from side to side. A flash of silver cut the air, and then the sound came again. The pumpkin was screaming. His blade cut the skin, and with deft motions he carved a sliver from the gourd, tossing it to the ground. Again and again he plunged the blade into the pumpkin, and each time I heard the noise, though the cries grew weaker. I was rooted to the ground watching him from behind, his shoulders pumping and swiveling, his body alive with the fury of his work. He dug a long, thin furrow in his creation's mouth and gave a soft cry himself when the knife caught. <laughs> cried the pumpkin as he brought the knife out and flicked another shard of shiny pulp over his shoulder. A piece bounced across the gravel near my feet. I don't know why, but I couldn't resist. I bent to pick it up. The pumpkin man whistled something then, some off-key tune as I turned the slick skin of the filleted gourd between my fingers. It was gross, sticky, and I dropped it back to the ground and carefully retraced my steps around the corner of the pumpkin display stand. In the light of the flickering, evil pumpkin faces, I held up my sticky fingers and gasped. They were coated in red. Blood. I turned and ran as hard as I could from the place. I didn't even stop for my bike. Nobody could understand why I wouldn't go on the daily forays to the pumpkin man's displays. The next day, I stopped by the lot just fast enough to retrieve my abandoned bike and then went out with Steve to look for Rusty, his German shepherd. The dog had gotten out the day before, and while that wasn't unusual, this time it hadn't come back. Steve tried not to show it, but he was near tears. We combed the woods on the west side of our subdivision for hours, going up one dirt trail and coming down the next, yelling, Rusty, dear boy. Looking for the dog kept my mind off the pumpkin display, but only for a while. The talk of the pumpkin man was ever-present at school. He's got a real cool one today, Carl's told me just a couple days after I'd heard the pumpkin cry. It's creepy, like a werewolf or something. It really looks like it has a snout full of nasty teeth. Try sticking your hand in him, I suggested, brushing past. I'm serious, man. You should see this one. It's one of his best. A week passed, and the October rains hit hard. The trees lost all their leaves at once, and the ground was a mess of brown, soggy piles. Nobody visited the pumpkin man for a couple days as the rains kept us dodging from car to school and back again. When it all passed and the days grew dry, the winds picked up and the days grew ever darker. Winter was just around the corner, and we pulled out our heaviest, ugliest coats to hide from the chill. My bike hadn't been out of the garage in almost two weeks. Let's see what the pumpkin man has been up to, Billy said one day after class. It was just before Halloween, and everyone eagerly assented, except for Steve and me. Steve's dog had never turned up, and he hadn't talked much once it became clear that Rusty wasn't coming back and I hadn't been to the corner of Fifth and Maple since the day after I'd held the shard of a bleeding pumpkin in my hand. But it was a rare sunny day, and Billy and Carl and Dan were almost running for the bike rack. Steve and I followed, but didn't say much. 
We pedaled past the towering piles of soggy leaves, and the wind shifted, blowing a crisp reminder of early winter across our necks. I shivered and pumped my feet harder to keep up. Good to see you, boys, the pumpkin man said in a voice sharp as cat claws as we walked up to the display of carved gourds. Which of my little beauties would you like to take home today? Despite the light of the waning afternoon sun, I thought the pumpkin seemed unusually grim. There was a darkness behind all of those razor-shorn eyes and a hunger in their ragged, sharp-edged teeth. Their hollowness called out to be filled, called out for blood. A chill shivered my spine at the thought. Got any vampire pumpkins? Carl said, and the man laughed. Can't say that I've killed me any of those. Have you tried to carve a Freddy Krueger pumpkin? Billy ventured. The pumpkin man shook his head and clouds of wispy hair flicked at his temples. I only carve from real life, he said. See this one? He pointed at a rat-faced pumpkin much like the one I'd noticed almost three weeks before. This one was a recent creation, but still aging fast. Its teeth curved inward, and a faint scum of mold covered the dark spots on the surface of its skin. Soon it would cave in on itself and decay. I use a squirrel for this one, he said. Note the teeth? We nodded at his ingenuity and stepped away. Maybe we all felt a little creeped out by a man who dedicated his life to carving pumpkins. And then Steve stopped at one of the newer creations, the one that, despite its round vein surface, seemed to have long canine teeth and a snout. It's just like Rusty, he breathed. I saw the wetness in his gaze and punched him in the shoulder. It's a pumpkin. I used a dog for that one, the pumpkin man called. Steve choked and balled his fists. Come on, I said and pushed him to leave. The others followed. Behind us, I heard the pumpkin man start to whistle. I don't know what he does, I told Steve later as we sat by the tree in his front yard. My butt was cold and damp from the leaves, but we didn't retreat to the warmth of his house. We had secrets to share. I was there looking at the pumpkins, I said. It was the day Rusty disappeared. I, I heard a screech like something was dying. When I went to look, I saw him carving a pumpkin, and when I picked up what he threw away from it, my hand was covered in blood. Something not right about the pumpkin man. Let's check it out. Steve said. What do you mean? Tonight, let's see how he does it. His eyes glimmered with unshed tears, and he turned away. I knew he was thinking about Rusty. All I could think about was the spine-curling scream of a mutilated pumpkin. We left our bikes at the Thompsons, two houses away from the vacant lot, which was now filled with pumpkins. It was dark, after 8 p.m., and the moon was nowhere to be found. I shivered beneath the heavy down of my olive green coat. I'm not even sure if it was because of the cold. We threaded our way between the piles of warded squash and miniature gourds and beach ball sized carving pumpkins. We stepped carefully, not wanting the crunch of gravel to give us away. In moments, we were face to face with the blazing wall of flaming, smoking faces. The rat faced pumpkin seemed even more shriveled than this afternoon, the curl of its teeth leaving it looking gummy, geriatric. The snarling dog-faced gourd caught Steve's eye again, and I had to pull him away. Come on, I said. He'll be back here. We stepped around the back of the pumpkin shed the same way I had two weeks before, but this time the pumpkin man was nowhere to be seen. The carving table was there, unused in the midst of the empty clearing. Maybe he's back here, Steve whispered, pointing to a small pickup truck trailer. 
You couldn't see the pickup from the street with all the pumpkins in the display shed, but now it was obvious how the pumpkin man got around. He could pack everything into the truck and then sleep in it as well. Steve stole around the side of the truck and disappeared into the shadows. I waited for him to round the other side of the rusting hulk of a vehicle, but he didn't reappear. The night only grew more still, then something snapped. I froze. From nearby I heard a now familiar whistle. This time I recognized the tune. It was Nowhere Man by the Beatles. I retreated from the pickup until the rear wall of the display stand was at my back. That's when I saw him. The pumpkin man sauntered around the side of the truck where I had been expecting to see Steve. Something was clutched in his arms. It was covered in a brown blanket or a tarp. He kept whistling, seemingly calm, but whatever he had trapped was wrestling and kicking like hell. He dragged the covered form over to the table, sat down, and with one hand scooped up a pumpkin and set it on the table. With the other, he forced the form and the blanket down on the table next to the gourd. I'm not clear exactly what happened then. It was dark, and the pumpkin man's back was to me, and I was scared. But I know this. From the depths of the night, I heard Steve cry my name, and then the pumpkin man's arm raised up high in the air. When it came down, a flash of silver against the sky, I heard the most piercing scream I've ever heard in my life, before or since. The blanket thrashed and kicked against the pumpkin man's body as he wedged it tight to the pumpkin on the table and dug his blade into the gourd again and again. Dark shapes flew in the air as he gouged chunks from the pumpkin and tossed them aside. On the table, a new face took shape, and I struggled to keep my teeth from chattering as I watched him draw eyes and a smile that were hauntingly familiar. The light was poor, and the pumpkin man's back hid his work, for the most part, from my spying eyes. But when the screaming faded to gasps, and the pumpkin man dropped his now still blanket of inspiration, I saw a shrieking face more horrible than any of the laughing, scowling faces on the stand directly behind me. On this pumpkin, captured in abject terror, the pumpkin man had carved Steve's crying face. I never saw Steve again. The kids at school talked the next day about the amazing new pumpkin that the pumpkin man had on display, but I didn't go see. I already knew what it would look like. The police came to our house on Halloween night and asked if we had any knowledge of Steve's disappearance. They asked when I'd last seen him and wrote carefully in their notebooks when I told them that we'd been at the Pumpkin Man's just two nights before and that the Pumpkin Man had carved Steve's face into one of his creations. They didn't believe me. I knew that they wouldn't. Even my parents shook their heads. That's why I didn't even bother to go to my dresser where the shriveling shard of the pumpkin triangle rested hidden away in my top drawer. I'd picked it up from the ground the night the Pumpkin Man carved Steve into a pumpkin. I think he knew I was there that night. At one point, he looked over his shoulder and smiled a horrible toothy grin in my direction. He started whistling again then, as if he knew I could never do anything to stop him. And he was right. Who would believe a kid that says a pumpkin carver was killing stray dogs and children to make his grotesque creations all the more real? But I still had the last piece of Steve they'll never find, shriveled like leather in a drawer. Its sunset skin is still faintly smeared by a dull, violent red.
Thanks, John. As I said after we heard the last tale John Everson shared with us, shake it off, children, shake it off. Or just let the quivers linger. John does it so well, leaves us with latent quivers that just work their way up and out, especially after we find ourselves alone and in the dark and remembering for a bit. John has been with us here in the Nook since just about the beginning. He's a multiple Stoker award-winning novelist and a short story writer. In 2004, his first novel, Covenant, won the Stoker for Best First Novel. His story, Letting Go, was nominated in 2007. John's sixth novel, Nightwear, was also nominated. While Nightwear debuted in an e-book format on June 5, 2012, a trade paperback edition hit stores one year ago, and a limited edition signed hardcover appeared this August. You can touch base with John Everson at his Dark Arts website at, simply enough, HTTP colon slash slash www.johneverson.com slash. Or just click on the link on our homepage. You can search for John on Amazon. You'll find quite a lot of his work there as Kindle ebooks. Many of them sell for a penny less than $3. So, if he is to your taste, go. By the way, as a publisher, John recently acquired publication rights to quite a few of Martin Munt's works in the collections The Dark Underbelly of Hymns and The Crawling Abattoir. You can look that up on Amazon, too, under Munt Martin. The Pumpkin Man was read for us tonight by Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen has been a busy lad here at Tales to Terrify. We welcomed him back in show 69 when he read O.D. Hegre's It's Just Tearing Me All Apart. Since then, he's narrated the two-part version of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows in shows 77 and 78. And in show 72, he read Joe McKinney's Stoker-nominated Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens. Stephen has a culinary arts degree. He is a customer service professional and lives in Northern Virginia. He's an avid fan of fiction, he says, the outdoors, and of board games. He also works in information technology and recently began volunteering in prisons. When not doing all of that, he enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. You can touch base with Stephen at http colon slash slash www dot Stephen Ski, that's S-T-E-V-E-N-S-K-I dot com. Very well, children of the night. Finish your treats. Stack your bowls. Drain your mugs. Consider finding your probably tangled autumn gear over on the bed. But before you go, have a listen to a bit of boogie rock by one Kent McDaniel. One, two. Cruising along in my hybrid ride. NPR on the air inside. Terry Growth and Arthur Wrong. Who had just written the zombie dog? Got loose you hats have to make a buck. Zombies think and vampires suck. 
lipstick and vampire fuck I don't care how you jive and suck I bet you secretly had enough Zombies, vampires and all that stuff It makes no sense, I don't care what's been said The zombies eat brains when they're all dead And what's so great about slurping up blood Your average man says stone cold dust Sleeping in coffins don't look like fun Or always hiding out from the sun All the sullen, sultry, I'm dead About to drive me out of my head endorse the sentiment, but there are some zombie tales and even some vampire pieces that tweak my fancy. When the vamps don't sparkle and the Zeeks do more than just moan and shuffle about. Thanks thanks for sharing that, though, Kent. Kent McDaniel grew up in the Ohio River Valley, but now lives in Chicago, which, except for the winters and the traffic, he says, he likes. He also says he spends a lot of time playing music, writing prose, and just walking around the city. Yes, it is a good city for walking. He and his wife and friends perform at music venues in and around the area, and you can see video from their shows at the YouTube link on the Tales homepage. Kent has also had stories in Downstate Story, Chafin Journal, Palo Alto Review, Iconoclast, Allegory, M. Brain SF, Wild Violet, and Blue Lake Review. He also publishes the zine Dumbfounding Stories for Southern Fandom Press Alliance, a venerable bastion of Southern science fiction fandom. He is also a member of the Writers, a critique group in Glencoe, Illinois, and belongs to the Chicago Writers Association, for which he reviews books at their Windy City Reviews site. And that, children of the night, will be that. I do hope you'll stop by the Tales to Terrify homepage or our Facebook page and consider making a donation to Yuji Foster or consider buying some of her work. It will help. Also, one more bit of information, self-serving though it may be, 
I had a delivery from Crystal Lake Publishing this week. It's my contributor's copy of Fear the Reaper, and it is a beauty of a book. I've mentioned it. You've seen the table of contents. I've posted the cover art. And on Friday, October 25, Crystal Lake will have an online launch party for Fear the Reaper on Facebook. This is a big book, 21 authors, 402 pages, and it is one cent less than 15 U.S. dollars, at least here in the States. It's four ninety nine on Kindle. I just thought I'd mention it. It does look like a great book, and we'll probably read a story or two from it here in the nook. Anyway, be off with you now. It's quiet out there. The bonfires have died. The vampires and zombies you might imagine stalking your path home are just shadows and echoes. Enjoy the crispness of the evening, the dingle starry night above the lake. Yes, there are windows, porches, lawns, from which pumpkins grin and flicker, but they're, they're just dead vegetables. And the spooks? Just empty sheets. Near home, though, when hearth and bed beckon, try to avoid thinking of large—no, no, no, of huge feet, of bulbous noses incarnadined above a grinning rictus. Avoid thoughts of florid flaming hair and ivory-white skin. They may be just shivers from childhood, but those shivers— can enter your thoughts in that antic way of the breed and insinuate themselves into your almost always pleasant season's dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.